series called Jesus is the Good News. And today is the last part where we'll be finishing John chapter 10. In this series so far, we've been watching and learning how Jesus reaches different people in different ways. Leon Morris's quote has really set the tone, so let me remind you of what he said one more time. Leon Morris says, In his ministry to the souls of men and women, Jesus adopted no stereotyped approach. He dealt with each man as his peculiar need required. By now you've probably gathered that this series is meant not only to stimulate the faith of believers as we look at Jesus dealing with people much like us, but this series is also meant to show us that Jesus himself is the greatest preacher this world has ever known. To use a technical word, we've been learning evangelism from Jesus. I think we're beginning to see that he's in a league of his own in the enterprise of outreach. Like no other, he gets to the root of people's sins, troubles, and unbelief. We've seen how Jesus speaks the right words at the right time to the people right in front of him. And this is not just restricted to John chapters 9 and 10. As you read throughout the Gospels, you'll see that he's always adapting as he approaches people. And I think he's the best example for us believers to follow if we want to be effective in outreach. Because, well, not every believer will be called to the office of preacher or pastor. Every believer is called to obey Christ by telling others about him. We're called not only to follow Jesus, but also to fish for men. Or to put it another way, we're called to follow Jesus and fish for men. We're called, uh, so I hope in this series uh, you've been encouraged, your heart has been encouraged in the mighty love of Christ for you personally. And I hope it's also got you thinking creatively about the ways you can approach people in your life with the good news. And as the title of the series suggests, when we're telling people the good news about Christianity, we're not offering a package like a salesman. We're offering a person, Jesus Christ himself. He is the good news. Now, as we begin this morning, let's remember why John wrote his gospel. If you flip over to John chapter 20, verse 31, we find his purpose statement. John wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wrote so his readers would read this book, see Jesus in it, and believe in him for eternal life. The word believe occurs 98 times in this book, and some have called John's gospel the gospel of belief. And we'll see this word many times, a few times in our text today. So let's flip over now to John chapter 10, where we'll be looking at verses 22 to 42. Today I think we'll see that the Father and the Son protect and secure all who believe in Jesus as the Son of God with eternal life. The Father and the Son protect and secure all who believe in Jesus as the Son of God with eternal life. That's a mouthful. Let's pray as we start. 
Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. Grant us sight. Grant us light and life through Jesus Christ. We ask that those who are hearing this and those who have not yet come to Jesus would believe in him as the Son of God. And we ask that you would minister in different ways to the different people that are hearing your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. This text begins by showing us how Jesus' opponents question who he is. Look at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Here we're given a time note transitioning from the previous passage in, the, in John chapter 10. We're told that there's a festival here, a, feast, a festival of dedication at Jerusalem. This festival uh, likely refers to Hanukkah, which was a, a festival that the Jewish people celebrated. And Jesus was in the temple at this festival. And soon he will be surrounded by a group of his opponents. So let's take a second to consider who are his opponents. They're, identi uh, they're identified in John's gospel with different names. A couple of them are the Jews and the Pharisees. These opponents held influence in the Jewish community, and especially as religious authorities in Judaism, the faith of the Hebrew scriptures and tradition. And though they've seen Jesus give sight to a blind man and receive worship from this blind man who has given sight, they're still not persuaded by Jesus' claims. And now they're closing in on him so as to force him to answer their question. Look at verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now at first glance, this may sound like a wonderful question. And we may even think, wow, maybe they're getting it. But once we understand the context of this text, we'll get insight into their question. When Jesus came into the land of Israel in the first century, there were many who were expecting a Messiah. But the Messiah they were expecting was going to destroy their enemies and liberate them from the oppressive government of the Romans. They wanted a political, military, and social salvation from a Messiah who would conquer their ungodly oppressors. Though in name and appearance they were waiting for the Messiah, their concept of the Messiah was not lining up with what they saw in Jesus, the true Messiah. And this becomes even more clear as we progress through John's uh, book, uh, as Jesus talks about going to a cross to die. They wanted a Messiah to rule and reign over the current authorities that were making their, life, their lives miserable. But Jesus comes as a humble servant suffering on behalf of his sinful people in order to bring them through death into resurrection life by faith. That's the Messiah. That's the way he brings in his kingdom. His kingdom is a very different kingdom than what they had expected the Messiah to bring in. But they didn't grasp this, and let's see why next. Next we see Jesus responds to their question of whether he is the Messiah in verses 25 and following. 
Jesus responds now to his opponents. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. The source of their troubles, these opponents of Jesus, the source of their troubles with Jesus comes from a heart of unbelief. Because of their unbelief, they can't grasp the significance of Christ's works, especially the one that just took place. The works that Jesus did in the Father's name, authority, and with his approval were meant to be signs pointing to Jesus, who was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But they were utterly blind to the person of Christ and the truth that is in Jesus right in front of their faces. Now, it would be easy to start pointing my finger at the Pharisees right now and say, Oh, how foolish of them to not believe in Jesus. It'd be easy to think, God, I thank you that I'm not like these Pharisees. But I know that my heart, my own heart, has a lot in common with the Pharisees. In fact, I lived 20 years of my life in unbelief just like these Pharisees. I get it. I remember like it was yesterday how I cared less about Jesus and God's word. And I'm sure if you look back at your life, you can see how patient God has been with you in your unbelief in Jesus. I'm sure you can remember many times, maybe even very recently, that you missed the truth of Jesus right in front of your face. Unbelief is the heart's natural attitude towards the loving God of the Bible. And like the Pharisees, we're all born with this condition. Now look at verse 26. Jesus says, But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus says the reason some people don't believe in him is because they don't belong to him. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. As Jesus says in John 8, verse 47, the one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. If people live their whole lives in unbelief and never come to Jesus, they prove they don't belong to him. On the other hand, those who come to him prove they belong to him. They're his sheep. This explains it. Some people believe in Christ because he has made us his own people. And though everyone is born with an unbelieving heart like these opponents of Christ, in God's amazing grace, he has caused and he does cause, cause some people to be born again, a second time, in a supernatural birth. birth. People then become new creatures in Christ and they believe in him. As Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Friend, let me ask you, have you been born again? 
This reminds me of that shocking verse in John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus in the saving, believing way that John is writing about in his gospel without a mighty work of God. Unless the Father draws us to Jesus, we will not be drawn nor come to Jesus. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, I don't emphasize this because I want to spoil your lunch or give you a sour taste in your mouth for Christianity at all. But I emphasize this because Jesus emphasizes it, and I stress it so that none of us, so that all of us, sorry, knows that none of us has what it takes to be a Christian inside of us. We don't have what it takes naturally. We need a work of the Almighty God for us to become Christ's sheep. The Pharisees didn't have what it takes inside of them, nor do we. When someone believes in Jesus as the Son of God, it is a supernatural work of the living God coming from outside of us. We aren't Christians because we're good people or because we read our Bible or go to small group or come to church or watch church online. We're Christians because the Father has drawn us to Christ. We believe in Christ because God has made us His own sheep. We belong to Him. Salvation is an act of God from beginning to end. He saves, He gives eternal life, and there is nothing in us that funded our salvation. We were bought with a price through the cross of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, in time and history, applies the work of Christ to our hearts. And we believe. We listen, we know, and we follow Jesus because He has made us His own Christ's sheep believe in him because we belong to him. Listen to Tom Schreiner as he says uh, some insightful words on this. He says, Jesus shepherds his own sheep as the good shepherd. But how does one become part of his flock? John impresses upon readers the necessity to believe. And yet belief cannot be generated by human beings on their own. Only those who belong to Jesus' flock believe. Only those who belong to God hear his word. The circle of faith is beyond human ability because of human selfishness and blindness. But Jesus tells his disciples that he brings others into his fold. Jesus grants eternal life to those granted to him by the Father. And that life is indefectible. No one can remove them from his or the Father's protection. While unbelief in Jesus is widespread today as it was then, unbelief does not excuse us from God's judgment seat. Rather, it indicts us to it. God will hold everyone responsible for their unbelief in Jesus. But Jesus' sheep 
are effectively called out of unbelief and they listen and follow Jesus. He sees them, saves them, and secures them. Now, we're touching on the grand themes of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Scholars in the church have been writing and debating these issues for hundreds of years, and I won't for a second claim to have the final word on this matter. But I do want to say, as our text shows, and as the Gospel of John shows many times in chapter 3, in chapter 1, in chapter 6, the Bible teaches both that God saves and that man is responsible to believe. So for today, let's table this issue and take a second to ask ourselves some important questions. Here's some questions I want you to ask yourself. Have I believed in Jesus? Am I one of his sheep? Do I listen to and follow him? Now, in the next verses, we're about to go deep sea diving into some of the wonders of Christianity. And as we do, I want to start by thinking of this term, eternal life, which will be used by Jesus Eternal life. I I don't want you to think of it as a membership card to get you into heaven like you flash your membership card at Costco. I want you to think of eternal life as a personal connection with Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, John says, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, so when we're talking about eternal life, we're talking about a relationship with a real person, Jesus Christ. People who have eternal life have Jesus. We have a bond of love with him. And those who don't have eternal life don't have Jesus and don't have a bond of love with him, yet. Now, let's hear what Jesus has to say about eternal life in verses 28 through 29. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. These verses are some of the main texts for what we call eternal security. Here, Scripture is shifting the way we think about things. Jesus gives us eternal life, which is an intimate relationship or bond with him. And we who believe in Christ are assured that we will never, no, never perish. We will never experience the judgment that we deserve. The promise is that though there are many dangers, uh, there are many dangers around us, none of us will perish. None of these dangers around us can effectively destroy our love relationship with Jesus. And I think hand here, this word hand that's used, is used figuratively, making the point that God the Son, the Good Shepherd, and God the Father are united in holding and securing their people from those who'd seek to snatch them by force or violence. 
None of us will perish if we have believed in Christ. We have eternal life and we are secure. Here the earlier images of the sheep, shepherd, thieves, and robbers serve as helpful reminders for us. They remind us that the Christian lives in a world full of hidden and invisible spiritual dangers and enemies. I love what Leon Morris says about these verses. The flock that the Father has given the Son is greater in His eyes than anything else on earth. Since He thus attaches the highest value to it, He will look after it to the end. The shepherd is all-powerful, and the sheep in His hand have nothing to fear. Since the Father is greater than all things, including unforeseen dangers and powerful people like robbers and thieves, nothing at all can break the personal connection Christians have with Christ through faith. We are secure in our relationship with the triune God from the moment we believe into and throughout eternity. Christ is ours forevermore. Death can't even separate us. Death, death. How many of us are afraid of death? Death can't separate us from the life and love of our Savior. I hope these truths make you courageous in your faith and confident in your Christ. Christian, whatever is happening around you and even within you right now, Christ will hold you fast. Now, before we go to the next verse, I want you to ask yourself some important questions. No matter who you are or how long you've come to church, ask yourself this. Do I have eternal life? Do I know Christ? Do I have a real relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, by faith? Honestly ponder and pause on this question. In all my getting in my life, have I gotten Christ yet? Okay, let's look together at verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Sometimes it seems when you're reading the Gospel of John, you can go from ground level to the bottom of the sea floor in one or two verses. And did you notice? This has just happened in verse 30. This verse has plunged us to the depths of the inner life of the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Now, what is the significance of this statement in Jesus' conversation with his opponents? Why would he say this right now? Well, remember, Jesus is speaking to people who uh, would have known the Old Testament very well. They were leaders in the religion of Judaism. They were monotheistic, meaning they believed in one God, not many gods. And their main text for this would have been Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the ESV study Bible captures and connects the significance of these verses very beautifully. So listen carefully as I read these words. Jesus 
claim that I and the Father are one echoes the Shema, the basic confession of Judaism, whose first word in Deuteronomy 6.4 is Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. Jesus' words thus amount to a claim to deity. Hence, the Jews pick up stones to put him to death. As in John 1.1, here again, the basic building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity emerge. Listen carefully here. I and the Father implies more than one person in the Godhead. But our one implies that God is one being. Stand in awe. Jesus is God the Son. He and the Father are one. He said it. Do you believe it? Many of them were outraged by it. Are you? Look what happens next in verse 31 to 33. We see how Jesus' opponents respond with hatred. Look at verse 31. Again, his opponents picked up stones to stone him. Now, Don Carson helps us to make sense of their reaction to this statement as well here. He says, The desire to execute Jesus sprang from the perception that he was claiming equality or oneness with God, which of course was correct, though certainly not as an additional deity. See that? These Pharisees were well instructed in the Old Testament that God is one. But they misunderstood and tripped over Jesus' claim to deity here as a claim to be a different kind of God, which is not at all what he was saying. He is, in fact, saying he is the true God in human form. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the Lord God of Israel that all people are to love with all their heart. But because of their unbelief, just like us, they didn't automatically recognize God when he showed up in Jesus. But Jesus came to reveal God to them and to us. He reveals himself as the Son of the Father. And as you see in the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, he makes known and knowable, uh, he makes God known and knowable to mankind. He explains God to the human race. So if we're ever to learn what God is truly like, we must look outside of ourselves to Jesus. But their concept of God naturally wasn't as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was a problem. Because the New Testament teaches that there is only one God. Absolutely. And that that one God exists in three persons. So their concept of God was not triune enough. And this is a problem we all have unless God changes our thinking. And this is a problem maybe some of your uh, friends have who follow monotheistic religions like Judaism or Islam. They trip over this concept of the Trinity. God himself must change our thinking about God. Listen to how Michael Reeves puts it in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He says this, 
Who and what God is like tend to be things we assume we already know and so do not need to think much more about. Thus, Christians ask non-Christians whether they believe in God. As if the very idea of God is self-explanatory. As if we all will be thinking, we will all be thinking of the same sort of being. Yet the temptation to sculpt God according to our expectations and presuppositions to make this God much like another is strong with us. The trouble is, the triune God simply does not fit well into the mold of any other God. Trying to get along with some unspecified God, we will quickly find ourselves with another God. So used are we to fashioning God according to our assumptions that our minds simply rebel at the thought of a God who is not as we would expect. We imagine God would be a simpler being, a single person God. So God has to supernaturally change how we naturally think about God. We need him to reveal himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He must push out our old, vague notions of a generic God and show us who the real God truly is. And he does this by teaching us and revealing himself to us through his Son and his written word. And as we dig into the Bible and learn Jesus, the Holy Spirit starts to cement these truths into our hearts, doesn't he? We start to see for ourselves that the Son and the Father are one. And though we can't completely comprehend it, we believe it. And truly, this is one of the great proofs that we're Christians, isn't it? That our ideas about God have actually changed according to His Word and how He reveals Himself. We stop seeing God as a distant ogre in the sky that we pay off with good deeds so he'll leave us alone. And we start seeing him as our heavenly father whom our hearts know and cry to personally. We start unlearning our most instinctive, unchallenged thoughts about God. And we start learning of God as he disclosed himself in his word as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, sadly, Christ's opponents still didn't see him accurately, so they accuse him of blasphemy. They had just picked up stones to throw at him. Now let's see how Jesus responds in this tense moment of rage. Jesus calmly and courageously resumes this discussion with them, questioning their motives for trying to kill him. He says in verse 32 to 33, But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They couldn't believe that God came in person, especially in the person of Jesus. But one of the ways his verbal claims are backed up is by the visible works he did when he was here. Though the works were good and noble, they still would not be persuaded 
by them. Watch next how Jesus questions his opponents. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are God's? Now, explaining verse 34, the ESV Bible, uh, the ESV study Bible says this. Jesus' point in quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, is that if human judges, which are referred to in verses 2 to 4, if human judges can in some way, some sense, be called gods, in light of their role as representatives of God, this designation is even more appropriate for the one who truly is the Son of God, as we see in John 10, verses 33 to 36. Now moving on to 35, we read, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Jesus now goes to the scriptures that they know very well and they uh, esteem as authoritative. And he basically says, now listen, scripture is true in every word it speaks. And scripture called lesser people than me gods. So why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I, the father's very own son, say I'm God's son. I'm just speaking the truth. And this argument holds off their attack for a few moments. But the point is clear. The charge of blasphemy can't stick to Jesus. Since he truly is, as he says he is, the son of God. Now, watch as he appeals to his opponents one last time to believe in him. Remember, they've been against him ever since he gave sight to the blind man back in chapter 9. Look at verse 37 to, 30, uh, to 38. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus now wisely appeals to his opponents in a different way. He's still adjusting to reach these people, even as they plot to kill him. He knows they won't accept his words or even his appeal to the scriptures. So he says, look at my works. They are the works of my father. The things I have done are the works of my father. If I don't do my father's works, you have no reason, uh, sorry, you have reason not to believe in me. Okay, But if I truly do my father work, Father's works, then though you can't believe in me, believe in the works, and then you'll start to grasp who I really am. Now, this is tricky. What's Jesus doing here? Leon Morris helps us and quote from him one last time. He says this, Jesus is looking for them to have a moment of insight and then to remain permanently in the knowledge that that, that that moment has brought them. The knowledge to which a right perception of the works would bring them is that of the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. In other words, if they could understand the significance of Jesus doing the works of his heavenly Father, they may start to grasp the significance of the relationship between the Father and the Son. 
Jesus makes a similar statement in John 14, verses 10 through 11, where Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Have you seen God do works in your life or someone else's life through his word? Maybe you've seen your child converted from a life of crime and anger. Or maybe you've seen close friends believe in Christ even though they're dissed by their peers. Believe the works that you may know and believe in Jesus who does these works of salvation these works of his Father, even still today, through his very word. Now watch and see how God is working invisibly by the visible response we see in these people. And I hope the responses we see here encourage our hearts and inform our prayers for the people in our lives that we want to bring to Jesus. In these verses, we see a mixed response. Look at verse 39. Again, they tried to seize him but he escaped their grasp. Now get a hold of the irony. Our text has taught us that nobody can snatch Christians from the Father and the Son's hold on them, right? In like manner, nor could these opponents snatch or seize Christ who was right in front of them. Jesus was under the Father's care even while he's face to face with his opponents. Christ escapes their attacks because they're rendered powerless to arrest him and God the Father is powerful to protect him. Christ's hour and his cross were indeed coming, but they weren't yet here. So he leaves the scene without being crushed by the stones they sought to kill him with. But they're left in their unbelief yet not without plenty to think about. Now, I think we can connect the mixed response here in this passage to something we see every day. It seems to me that there are always people around us who oppose Jesus in unbelief. But maybe just around the corner, like we see here in this passage, many will believe in Jesus. Look at verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. The writer here takes us to a different location now where Jesus stays. And we're reminded that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus and to bear witness about him. And similar to the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, these people believe in the credibility of John the Baptist's words. They've come to see for themselves that what John said about Jesus was indeed true. 
And in that place, like in Samaria, in John 4, many believed in Jesus through the testimony, through the witness of that person. We may say today that people were coming to Christ. In both cases, people believed through a witness, both the Samaritan woman and John the Baptist. And God himself used each of them like he uses each of us as instruments in his hands to orchestrate salvation for people so that many would believe in Jesus. First-hand faith. Now as we close, let me leave you with some words that I hope touch your heart with the love of Christ and motivate you to tell others that Jesus is the good news. These words come from Jerem Bars, who wrote a book called Learning Evangelism from Jesus, which inspired this series. Jerem says this, Jesus was not only the greatest evangelist when he did his work of ministry on this earth almost 2,000 years ago. He is still the greatest evangelist today and every day. He always works tirelessly without any Sabbath rest drawing people to himself. He has committed himself to use our stumbling efforts and inadequate words in this great work that he is doing. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are at work in every corner of this globe, and they are delighted to call us to add our little labors to their great labors and to share with us the joy of calling people to faith in the Savior of the world. Church, one of the reasons we're still here is to call people to faith in Jesus, the Savior of the world. So who are you calling this week? Let's pray. Father in heaven, if it weren't for a spokesperson to tell us about Jesus, we don't know where we'd be. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would convict us of our unbelief, convict us of our laziness and disobedience to this call to call people to Jesus, the Savior of the world. I pray that you'd use our inadequate efforts and our stumbling words to bring many to faith in Christ. During this season, through the internet, we pray that many would come to know Christ as their Lord, their Savior. We thank you for the work you're doing and that you've given us the opportunity to share with you in this great work. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen.